Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. All right, we are back, and it's been a long time. A lot has changed, but a lot has stayed pretty much the same. So, in that spirit, we will talk about things today with Mr. Didymus, about things that really haven't changed that have been going on for centuries. But perhaps what is changing is people's awareness of such things. And what we are referring to here are the religious battles throughout European Christendom up until the Enlightenment, up until the 20th century, up to the present day. And our focus for today's discussion will be on Judaism. Now this is a very controversial topic depending on what sorts of territories you get into it, but Mr. Didymus and I feel like we're two relatively objective dudes just trying to be honest about things, just trying to look into things, understand them better, even if they are deemed controversial. And in doing this, we share them with you, so you can decide what you think about all of these sensitive topics. And I think just speaking like that just now probably triggered some people. So, with that in mind, let's take a chill pill and try to suppress our predispositions to freak out, man, when we start talking about things like religious problems, issues, battles between Jewish power, Catholic power, Protestant power, Freemasonic power, and crazy things like Kabbalistic blood rituals, and Sabatian Frankis, who have some pretty wild stuff going on. Are these things relative to today? Are they things of the past? Where does the line blur between reality, fact, and fiction? So as previously mentioned, Mr. Didymus and I will try to do the tightrope walking that you must engage in when trying to sort out these delicate issues. And some things we just can't know, but I think we can also learn from how people engage with the things that we can't know. How different forces group together and respond to change narratives to try to influence opinions. So let's sort all of this out now, here with Mr. Didymus. Alright, welcome back. We've been on a very long hiatus, and I think it will be worth it with this show today. We have Mr. Didymus with us, and we are going to discuss all kinds of controversial topics, and generally in the under the umbrella of Judaism. And we'd like to try to maybe clear up some misconceptions, but also not shy away from the important issues. So with that being said, First off, Mr. Didymus, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to start off um, just asking you about your basic background, what type of family life you grew up in and where you came from, what got you into studying these subjects in the first place, and sort of the evolution of the topics, how you've delved in and 
are you basically uh, kind of an independent self-taught kind of guy or do you have a specific scholastic background and what are your areas of knowledge that you feel strongest in and where do you want to move towards in the future? So I think I'm pretty typical for an American from the middle class that was born in the 1980s. Probably the most different or salient thing about me would be that I'm a Southerner, so that forms a part of my identity that I'll never be able to get away from, not that I want to. But my my family background was uh, middle class, uh, professional. My parents were members of the petty bourgeoisie for a short time and then reverted just back to a normal middle class lifestyle. Um, both of my parents came from a poor farming background and they were um, kind of a mix. So one half of my family was um, Southern European, Western European, Catholic, and then the other half of the family was uh, Protestant, Northern European. So in that sense, my um, ethno-racial identity is just fully Western European. I'm kind of an even mix of several different components. And culturally, you know, I've kind of, I'm kind of schizophrenic because I've got the Catholicism on one side and the Protestantism on the other and then the uh, European uh, racial mixture that actually supports those two different cultures. So I think um, that that's, that's my, my um, family background. When I went to college, I got exposed heavily, although I didn't know it at the time, to cultural Marxism, and I just instinctively rebelled against that. But, you know, if you don't get any alternatives, you're just kind of flailing in the wind, which is what I did for several years. And the best I could do was to become a libertarian. And, you know, then I went to graduate school and I got some professional <clears throat> professional training in the social sciences. I published some papers in peer-reviewed journals. And um, several years after that, I've, you know, now started to come up with, I think, a coherent political and philosophical framework to deal with some of these scholarly issues on my own. And that's led me to deal with two uh, areas in general and that is uh, liberalism and uh, the legacy of that in, in Western civilization since the French, Re French Revolution and um, uh, the Jewish question. And those two things, um, strange as it might seem to the uninitiated, those two things are uh, linked and can't really be separated. Yeah, and I have sort of a similar background in a way where I went to college for a brief stint I wasn't really that invested in it. It was just what you were supposed to do, I guess, uh, or what you're told. Right. And, um, yeah, I just noticed that when I took a history course on, like, American history, all of a sudden it goes from Columbus and Thanksgiving dinners with Indians and all that kind of stuff to, like, oh, we are just rotten and evil. And I was really surprised reading some of these history books. I was like, wow, this is just completely the opposite of what I was taught growing up. And at some level, I was like, you know what, maybe this is somewhat close to the truth. But at the same time, I thought it was really rotten how it was like, you know, you suck kind of thing. So I was kind of caught in a little bit of a bipolarity there, but it didn't really impact me that much because I wasn't even that overly invested. I certainly didn't have any intellectual elitism about me in those regards. Like I didn't want to get any sort of education to like prop myself up. I was just not really knowing what the hell I was doing and you kind of drift towards this or that. And then I think similarly libertarianism 
whether I knew that was the viewpoint I held or not was sort of probably what I organically just drifted to, to kind of be in the middle of that, I guess. Yeah, it's a good fallback position because honestly, um, something like right-wing libertarianism, culturally right-wing economic libertarianism, that's the philosophy of the French Revolution. It's at least the exoteric philosophy. And that's also the position that um, the founders of the American Republic sort of established for themselves. So we've got that on one side, and then you've got cultural Marxism on the other, and that's the that's the the rock and the hard place. And you've got to fight like hell to get out of there before you know not fall into one of those two things, which is what happens to most people, I think. Absolutely, and especially our generation. I was yep. born in the 80s as well, in 82, so I consider myself kind of an elder millennial. But anyways, moving on. Today, we wanted to talk a bit about the different viewpoints that fall under the umbrella of Judaism. And I know that this is one of the most controversial things that somebody can talk about these days, and it ends up usually in a lot of censorship. But I think that we can give it its due diligence to try to clear up some misconceptions on either side, right? Because I think that the alt-right can kind of go to these extremes that I really particularly don't identify with. But at the same time, some people bring up the anti-Semitism blanket, you know, accusation when just the topic is even discussed, even before something gets to anything that might even seem polemical. But anyways, I think that the one thing that we can probably agree upon on both sides is that the common bond is that Jewish people don't accept Christ as the Messiah, and they might have varying degrees of indifference or hostility with that. And um, there's maybe an exception of Messianic Jews. I think of people like Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, but that usually gets into more of a Zionist position than Christian Zionism, and that these things never really go away. They just kind of get hidden. So from your perspective, can you take us through a timeline of the developments of Judaism throughout the ages and explain kind of where it ended up and then briefly explain the factions as they are now? Yeah, so this is a topic that, you know, can just stretch on into infinity, and I'm sure there's been a million pages written about this, but we'll try to do the best that we can in a short short time frame to help, help the listeners. Um, there's a really sharp historical break that occurs in 70 AD, and that's when the future Roman emperor Titus destroys the second temple. Before that, we've really got um, the biblical religion of the Israelites, and this is what you read about when you read the Old Testament. And that legacy, the legacy of the first five books of the Old Testament, and then the books of the Judges, Chronicles, Kings, all these books that, you know, people have a Christian background, they grew up reading this stuff in Sunday school and elsewhere, um, this legacy is fought over in the post-70 AD period by at first two and then three different religions. And so what I would like to, to help the, the listener to do is um, establish a breakpoint at, 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 at that point. Uh, separate that in your mind. That's Israelitism. It's the religion of the Old Testament before that. And then emerging out of the ruins of the Second Temple, there are two major religious traditions. The first is Christianity. Everybody knows what that is. And then the other is something that we'll call Judaism. And it could be rabbinic Judaism, Talmudic Judaism, 
or Orthodox Judaism. These all really mean the same thing, and those names um, describe different key parts of that religion, um, emphasizing different aspects of it, but it's really the same thing. And later on when Islam emerges, they try to do the same thing too, but these three, these two or three religions all want to claim to be the single legitimate successor to the religion of the Old Testament. And if you would have talked to Jews or Muslims or Europeans up until the year 1700 or something like that, everyone would have claimed exclusivity. They would have said, no, we're the true tradition. We, we have the legitimate claim to that stuff. Now, um, in the Old Testament, God tells the, the Israelites or the Hebrews that he wants them to do three things specifically take the ark to a certain place in Palestine and Jerusalem, build a temple around it, and perform certain religious rites. After the temple's destroyed, you can't do those things anymore. The ark's gone, the temple's destroyed, and you can't do the worship at the temple. So that's over. What emerges in its place from a branch of the Israelite religion, or you might even say a heresy of the Israelite religion, is the Pharisaical tradition. And these are some of the people that Jesus battles with in the New Testament, the Pharisees. Everybody's heard of that. Um, they believed that rather than having a revealed tradition that came down from Mount Sinai uh, through the Ten Commandments and through Moses and something that anyone could read who was literate uh, and just having an exoteric, outward-facing religious tradition, the Pharisees argued, claimed, believed that God had spoken to Moses and given Moses a secret tradition, which he then communicated to his successors. And this oral tradition was actually more important than the outward-facing uh, public tradition because it was secret and it was only for the priestly caste, and so, or the, the scribes, rather. And so um, what they did was... Uh, after the temple was destroyed, this, this oral tradition, which had never been the main ascendant tradition in Israelite religion, was then used to create um, a, a new, religious, um, new religious life, basically. And it was formed in Babylon and also uh, in the remnants of the uh, Israelite-slash-Jewish community in Palestine, and they wrote two books called the Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, and I'm sure people have heard of those. And those are just essentially huge legalistic documents that, in effect, circumvent, surpass, and overwrite all of the commandments or most of the commandments in the Old Testament. So that's why if you look at Orthodox or Talmudic Judaism, they don't behave like the Hebrews or the Israelites were commanded to behave in the Old Testament because they've, they've surpassed all this and they've outdone it. There's also a fundamental shift in um, going from the Israelite religion to, to modern Judaism, you know, the, the Talmudic Judaism, in that uh, the power is no longer coming down from God to the people, but it's being produced within the rabbis themselves. The genius of the rabbis is this casuistic, uh, legalistic, um, antics, basically, that they perform in coming up with novel explanations to outdo each other and demonstrate their intellectual prowess. 
So the genius of the rabbis is what's really on display and ra rather than the holiness of the individual, which might have been emphasized more in the biblical period for the Israelites. And uh, of course, there's a bunch of other groups that are operating around the same time. There are the uh, Samaritans, which people will remember uh, from, from reading their Bibles. Uh, they're essentially a um, parallel to the Israelite religion that didn't depend on worship in Jerusalem. And then there are the Karaites, who are basically a continuation of the Israelite religion. They don't use the Talmud. Um, and then there are a bunch of other smaller groups as well, but those are basically in the ancient time period. That's, that's what we're looking at. And Talmudic or Rabbinic uh, Judaism is by far the largest group. And by 600 AD, they have pretty much crystallized into um, the religion that we would know in modern or Talmudic Judaism. And then from 600 to 1200, they continue to expand throughout Europe and the world to the point where uh, in most, most large cities in Europe would have some kind of Jewish population, even if it were very small. One thing that's interesting is this idea of another secret tradition on Sinai. And I find that echoed in things like Freemasonry, where when I read Manly Palmer Hall or whatever, they'll talk about how, <clears throat> excuse me, how there were um, the Ten Commandments that then they're tablets of stone. And that's for the quote-unquote exoteric religion. And then there's these sapphire tablets that are for the adepts or something of that nature. I, I think that that has the echo of aspects of how you're describing Judaism or how I've heard it described in that sort of sense in that kind of esoteric way where there's adepts, right? And they have like a special relationship of their consciousness with God. And that sort of is a precursor of stuff that I read about in Kabbalah, where you're a co-creator and God's will goes through man through a, a creation that's not finished. And it's up to these adepts to try to, uh, help create it. So it puts them on a level with God in a way, even though people might try to like justify that or work around that. It seems to me at its core supposition, it's just doing that. And I think that you can see this sort of echoing in all these different ways. I've talked about, at least in my research, people like Carl Sagan, who has a Jewish tradition, he even brings up quotes like this from the Talmud and it it's applied to scientism, right? E evolving mankind through science and technology. And that's sort of like the new Messiah or savior. And then you have this kind of built into theosophy on some level with the adepts and the root race cycles. And this is all kind of like permeating throughout the United Nations and their Lucius trust. And then you kind of see echoes of this, I think in Protestantism where it's like your direct connection with the Holy spirit supersedes any other knowledge. And then the more you got that Holy Spirit and the more you can convince other people you do, kind of like the more followers you get. So you see a lot of these splits. And I think the common denominator, in my opinion, is just kind of this elitism and finding ways to get around stuff that might be tied to that traditional Old Testament law of just obeying commandments when it's convenient. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. And all of those esoteric or mystical or occultic traditions, I think, really have their home uh, in this mindset that comes out of Kabbalah, but really goes all the way back to Talmudic Judaism itself. 
And uh, just to give one quote, um, I think it's actually from the Babylonian Talmud, but if not, it is definitely in some of the commentaries that were written between the 7th and 10th centuries. It says um, more or less that what was the purpose of all of, of everything in the book of Genesis up until I think maybe chapter 26 or something like that, whenever the visit to Sinai is, there was no purpose to that. It could have been excised from the book because the Jewish people, <clears throat> pardon me, they didn't really exist. And therefore the, you know, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, however you want to think of it, that basically everything that happened before Sinai did not matter did not matter at all. And the only reason that Sinai is important is because that's when the oral tradition was communicated. So that's really an extreme take on that. Where, but I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, official, um, that's official Jewish wisdom right there, right? That's really how they're thinking about it. And um, we'll move forward and talk about the Kabbalah because I think that's, it's very relevant to what you just said. Sometime between 1200 and 1400, there were rabbis, Talmudic rabbis in Spain, in southern France, and then also some in Palestine. And they came up with a new religious tradition that today we recognize as the Kabbalah, but it was a collection of mystical texts which were said to, again, go back really far in history, and they were said to have been secret and then only unearthed at this later date by people who were skilled enough and intelligent enough to read them and to comp comprehend them. And essentially what this Kabbalistic learning did is it allowed these elite rabbis to surpass and overwrite and go beyond um, uh, the you know, uh, strongly codified Talmudic rulings that had been accumulated over many centuries. So in the same way that the Talmud overwrote the Old Testament, for a small elite of rabbis, the Kabbalah then allows, um, allows its practitioners to overwrite this accumulated Talmudic learning. That's kind of an important thing to discuss, the transformation. I was just kind of alluding to things that you know, I've, I've read or I've observed that you were saying, okay, this is kind of like the general viewpoint, and then... I think that that echoes in different traditions and it maybe shows a common source. And so even I was just checking just now about the Sapphire tablet idea. And on, uh, I think it's Chabad, I don't know if I pronounced that right, .org, they even talk about how, you know, the Moses had these Sapphire tablets and stuff like that. So it's interesting that the Freemasons are, you know, echoing that. And then they have a lot of that Kabbalah intertwined into it. Then you have the other aspects of people claiming to be Israel of the Old Testament, and that gets into the Catholic Church, laying a claim onto that, which manifests differently. So I guess before we get too much more into the Kabbalah, uh, I just wanted to ask you, for people who might be Jewish today, who reject the Kabbalah or have a problem with it, and they might want to adhere to that old tradition where it's about morality and obeying the commandments is there something within that that has changed? Is that more related to the, the Karaite or whatever Judaism you talked about? Like, how does that come about in conjunction with Kabbalah kind of, uh, as you said in some of your videos, taking a glass of clear water and 
putting a little milk or dye or something in it and you can't get it out. Now it's the Kabbalah's in there. So how would you distinguish all of that? Yeah, I think we should give you credit for that analogy. I don't know if I said that, but it's a perfect one. Well, you said something similar to that, I remember. Yeah, but I mean, I, I really I really like that analogy. That's that's exactly what happens. So after the year 1400, once the Kabbalah has become more or less institutionalized in the circles of these elite rabbis, they then use the Kabbalistic learning to reinterpret the Talmud. And so from that point on, Every elite rabbi, and certainly the rabbis that are um, given cross-continental or cross-cultural uh, significance, like uh, for example, there'll be a there'll be an Ashkenaz tradition and there'll be a Sephardic tradition, and they will each value certain rabbis more than the others. But then there will always be a few that both traditions equally value and say, well, this guy was the greatest rabbi of his generation. Those guys are always Kabbalists. And so what that means is that everyone in the worldwide Jewish community, whether they know it or not, um, if they're a part of mainstream Judaism, they're getting Kabbalism. And there's just no way around it. Uh, the only way that you could uh, be Jewish and really closely adhere to some kind of uh, fundamental or root or uh, basic Judaism would be to be a Karite. And I, I would point out that except for a few cases, the Karites have not been subjected to the same type of counter-Semitic or anti-Semitic persecution that Talmudic or Orthodox Jews have, because they live differently as a result of their beliefs and religious practices, and therefore they don't grate on their host societies in the same way. Now, of course, that's not always true, but that's just a general thing. And uh, most Jews, just like most Christians or most Muslims, really don't understand their religious history. They don't know this stuff. Nobody's out there trying to tell them. Um, I've seen some videos on the Internet of uh, Chabad Lubavitcher rabbis trying to instruct 17-year-old Jewish kids in this uh, Kabbalistic Tikkun Olam stuff that basically says that the Goy don't have a soul, uh, that the Goyim don't have a soul. And, um, you know, if you're one of those 17-year-old Jewish kids, you know, you, you, you're not really exposed to any alternatives, and the historical development of this, these ideas hasn't been explained to you. So um, really, if you are Jewish and you're listening to this, you just got to do your own research and uh, take a critical outlook. Because most of the writings about Jewish history that come from Jews are uh, pro-Jewish to a slavish degree, and you really got to turn up your critical faculties to figure out, you know, what we're dealing with here. And I think that just in my own observation of listening to different, I guess, rabbis on YouTube, because everything is on YouTube these days, you'll have particular people, you know, you have Catholic priests on YouTube, you have these Kabbalist rabbis on YouTube, you have whoever. And I find that when I watch certain ones, you know, I actually really enjoy them. And I actually agree with them in a lot of ways. So if I take it on that surface level, I, I totally understand the mindset. But now that I know a little bit more about history, things like the, the nature of the Inquisition, I find that as soon as those topics come up, then that's where all these distortions happen. And then it's all of a sudden transitioning to these extensive torture devices that were designed just for Jews and all these sorts of things. And 
when you distort these things to that level, it starts creating enmity and it's not true and it distorts everything and it scares people who are unknowing and, and whether they're Jewish or not. So it's when those aspects of Christianity, especially that quote unquote old world version come out, that's when I see a lot of the distortions happening. And I think that that's something that is really important to consider when there's a lot of things that I'll hear them talk about. And I just, I, I really like them. I find them interesting. I, I like, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, there's a, there's a guy Abramson or something. I don't know. He's like a teacher. Yeah. It's either uh, Harry Abramson or Henry Abramson, and he's got an enormous series of, you know, 50 or 60 lectures on YouTube that as long as you keep your critical apparatus working while you're listening, they're, they're excellent. They're absolutely excellent. So um, there's a lot of really good material out there like that. Yeah, Henry Abramson. I just looked it up. And, and I, I really enjoy the guy. But like when it comes to that Inquisition stuff, I just noticed a lot of distortions happening. And, and that is, you know, my, my concern with a lot of these things. And that's what we're trying yeah. to flesh out here. So transitioning, maybe we can talk a bit about Zionism, because that is one of these things that a lot of Jewish people, whether they're kind of secular or religious, kind of place hope in that or they have some sort of special pride in that and then some are very hostile and critical to it and that becomes even more confusing so if you could maybe just give us your general thoughts on how you think that plays into this and expand upon any of those issues sure yeah so um zionism is i think a reaction to um modernism being injected into judaism so uh, between 1700 and 1800, uh, Orthodox, or, you know, from, so from 1400, when the Kabbalah is more or less, you know, crystallized and working until 1700, Orthodox Judaism is just chugging along, doing its thing. It's got, you know, kind of a golden age in Eastern Europe during that time. But around 1700, um, European rationalist philosophy uh, takes hold of the intellectual classes in Western and Central Europe, and it begins to penetrate the Jewish community uh, in the Jewish groups that live in those areas. And Moses Mendelssohn uh, was born, you know, some sometime like 1730 to died around 1790, something like that. And he's one of these people who's got one foot in the Jewish camp, one foot in the Western European camp and makes this really attractive lifestyle that a lot of people want to join. And that's the, that's the breach that opens up um, Western civilization to start entering into this closed ghetto uh, physically, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, this closed world of Orthodox Judaism. And one of the things that comes in and takes hold is nationalism. So the nationalisms of Western, Central, and Eastern Europe um, find, it finds a place there in the Jewish mind as well, and that's that's what Zionism is. It's Jewish nationalism, and it's not necessarily associated with a homeland in Palestine. There were plenty of ideas for the Jews to set up homelands in the far east of Siberia, in Madagascar, in Zanzibar, in Argentina or Chile. So there's all of these different places that were seriously discussed as places for the Jews to move to. And in at least three of those I can think of, they actually moved there in large numbers, bought land, tried to farm, failed, gave up, and um, eventually 
as we know, the Zionist entity, which it is sometimes, you know, called uh, by people who don't like it, or the state of Israel by people who do like it, was eventually formed. So that project was successful. And as you alluded to, uh, all sorts of different people are on board with this concept. Um, They're basically Jewish national socialists. You know, that's exactly what they were, were one of the most important groups involved in, in Zionism in the 20th century. Jewish communists, Jewish socialists, um, and then the ultra-Orthodox religious Jews. So all of these different people can somehow get behind this this idea, and that leads to one of the, you know, the, the weird circumstance. Like when we're recording this, we just had an election in Israel um, about a day and a half ago. And if you look at the party structure in that country, it's just totally fragmented. Hardly anybody agrees with anybody over there, except for the one idea that they want to have a Jewish state. That's about the one thing that they all agree on. It sounds like America. We can't agree, but we all agree on freedom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's something like that, you know, because uh, in America, you know, freedom for some people might be freedom from being shot up by a crazed gunman, whereas in America, other people might think that freedom is the right to have as many guns as you damn well please. So in Israel, the idea of having a Jewish state might mean one thing for one person and something different for somebody else. So, yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Yeah, and I was just briefly researching a little bit on Zionism because I was looking into Netanyahu's uh, family history because uh, I, you know, I mentioned this, I think, on Tim Kelly's show, how Benjamin Netanyahu's father had a heavy influence on that Spanish Inquisition book by Henry Kamen. And so I was curious about where they come from, and it seems like they had Russian roots, and that they were involved in these left and right wing Zionist disputes, and there seems to have been assassinations alleged by different factions and all these sorts of things. So I found that to be interesting that there is this conflict there, and I think that sometimes seeing that dialectic, people get caught up on it in like the Jewish side of it, where they're like, well, I don't believe in this aspect of Zionism. So they're kind of opposing maybe another party. Whereas in America, we have the same thing where people get caught on the conservative or, you know, liberal polarity. And they don't think that maybe there's just something not right with the whole system itself, if you can see what I'm saying. Yeah, definitely. Uh, The major difference between Israel and Western democracies is that, you know, for for all intents and purposes, they really are kind of an apartheid state. And they, um, you know, they control this territory with all these people who they don't identify with and they won't let them break off and they don't want to accept them either and give them voting rights. And so that kind of difficult position that the Israeli public is in leads them to basically all be nationalists in American terms, whereas in most Western European countries, nationalism is almost banned. You know, so like if you look at Britain or the United States, the center right and center left party both basically agree that there will be no nationalism whatsoever. Uh, Civic nationalism is like, whoa, that's like right wing in America and Britain, you know. But in Israel, um, ethno nationalism, racial nationalism, religious nationalism, that's totally mainstream. And just to just to kind of give people an idea here. 
everybody's heard uh, phrases like white power or black power. Um, and those are, you know, like fringe concepts and extremist concepts in, in, in America. But in Israel, one of the parties that was on the ballot that just ran in this election was literally called Jewish power. So um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the difference, you know. So they're, they're in this strange halfway house where there's left-wing nationalism, there's right-wing nationalism, there's centrist nationalism, but it's, uh, it's very mainstream in a way that it's just not here in our country. Yeah, and I think that for me recently I've been looking more into the French Revolution and then what happened after that, and it seems like all those Masonic revolutions that kind of went towards the East, towards Italy, towards Prussia, uh, Austria, they're all like nationalist movements, generally speaking, that gain the most prominence. And then on like the Anglo-American side of it, it seemed like it was a bit more international, maybe from like a capitalist standpoint. And now you have this sort of like American democracy that they're trying to export all over the world. So it's almost like, the right side went more nationalist and then the left side went more international. And then uh, that obviously brings kind of like the rise of the, the Nazis and stuff like that. And this is kind of like what you were talking about with, uh, you know, the Enlightenment changing things for Jews. It changed things for Christian Europe. Yes. And I think if you go back to the New Testament, it's like there's no difference between Jew or Greek, I think you can really see that in terms of these fundamental concepts. I, say, I give this example, I don't know if it's really that great, but like a concert hall or something. And if you have a, a band playing from the stage, it's the same music, there's the same soul going out, but the right side of the wall ha will have a different characteristic and it will reflect different frequencies than the left side of the wall. But it's mm -hmm. still the same fundamental driving force. And so these enlightenment principles, they're all based upon a particular core but within Germany, it changes its character. And I think it became, you know, seemingly to me more nationalistic. And maybe it was more nationalistic in like Britain and stuff, but it seemed to evolve into more of an internationalism. I don't know if that's like a accurate assessment, but that seems to be somewhat connected to what you were saying in, in Israel. Yeah. And so um, for these Jews who were part of the Zionist movement, they almost exclusively came from Central and Eastern Europe. So they they were Jews from Poland, so a few from Russia, but mostly from Poland and Germany, right? Whereas uh, I, I think you're 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 really onto something here because a large part of Anglo-American Jewry was opposed to the Zionist project. They did not necessarily want to completely assimilate, but they were, um, you know, in the large part, pretty much assimilationist um, while wanting to retain uh, distinctive elements of their community. But it was really the German, Polish, and Russian-speaking Jews who said, we want our homeland. We want a place where we can do this stuff. And if you read the, um, the, the, the publications, pamphlets, and books of the uh, Zionist movement, even when they come to America, a lot of the ones who were in America were German, Polish, and Russian speakers originally. So I think, I think that you're definitely on to something with that. And the way that the nationalism changed after the French Revolution and Napoleon and those different regions influenced the way that the uh, Jewish community absorbed those ideas and then uh, recreated them as their own. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know if you wanted to touch maybe upon Marxism because there's sort of these Jewish roots there, but from what I read on Marx, he had like the stereotypical criticisms of Jews for that time. 
So I don't know, like that, that's kind of like a strange, maybe split or reaction. Would you say, what would you, how would you describe Marxism? So the, there's these modern, uh, modern in the, you know, the, uh, the formal sense, like these late modern developments after, um, Jews lose their religion, basically. So uh, the communist movement in um, Russia, so like the Bolshevik movement, the Menshevik movement, all these different people, um, they were Polish Jews from the most part who had completely dispensed with Orthodox Judaism. But what they retained from it were certain aspects of a messianic worldview, which we haven't touched on yet because, you know, you can't, you can't talk about everything. But in diasporic Judaism, there's always been this hope that the Messiah will come, defeat the evildoers, and that a utopia will be established on earth. And so if you are poor and you're a Jew from Poland and you've dispensed with your Orthodox background, but you've still got some of this lingering psychological or emotional attachment to these ideas, you may see the Messiah as Marx, and you may see Marxism as the way to establish the utopia. And it's no accident that, uh, you know, groups like the Bolshevik Party, especially the leadership, were overwhelmingly Jewish with, um, uh, compared to their proportion of the population, for instance. And I've looked at that in detail by going through the list of the, you know, the, the party Congress leadership and identifying you know, Jews were something like one and a half percent of the Russian Empire's population, but anywhere from 40 to 50 percent of the leadership of the Bolshevik Party was Jewish. And some people will go crazy overboard with this and start saying, oh, my God, every single one of them was a Jew. It was 99 percent. And that's 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 not true. Oh, I just say yeah, you had a good video breaking that down. I thought it was right. really well done. Thank you. And um, yes. And so in expanding upon that the other thing i think the alt-right doesn't really do um is in that context if it's the enlightenment that really was uh you know that was their sort of unique reaction to it let's say but it's still the enlightenment principles that were kind of driving that on some level it just took on a different characteristic and i think that the alt-right guys are still adhering to those principles on some level and so are they just kind of barking at their own shadow i think in like a dialectical kind of way, because there's this sort of interesting aspect of the racialism, you know, in the late 1800s that the, the Nazis uh, were the conclusion of. And then you have aspects of the racial Zionism and they're kind of just the same thing in a way they're based upon that racial state. And so is that just the pot calling the kettle black? I guess that would be my point. I don't know what you think about yeah, it's, it's a really complicated issue, and this is partly uh, why I enjoy listening to um, Catholic intellectuals, because they know how to deal with this stuff, and they've been dealing with it for such a long time. And I think my, my favorite pope is um, Pope Pius X, and I really get a lot out of his—what's um, oh, his most famous encyclical? I can't remember it off the top of my head, but the one against modernism— he and the Catholic tradition have identified this serious problem in Western civilization with liberalism, okay? So um, the people who see the Jewish question or the Jewish problem as exclusively the one and all answer to everything, I think they're wrong. I, I, I don't think that that is the whole story. Um, there is some kind of 
thing going on with kind of what you're getting at, you know, is liberalism or the Enlightenment is um, having a certain effect on the uh, European population. It's having another effect on the Jewish population. And then everything kind of goes up in flames and we're left pointing fingers in the ashes trying to figure out who caused what and what happened. Um, so it, it's terribly complicated. And, you know, some people, uh, political activists and intellectuals, don't want to point the finger back at themselves or their people. They always want to be pointing outward at someone else. Having, having said that, I do think that exploring the Jewish question is one of the um, uh, unresolved issues of the 19th century that all of our great intellectuals, like uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, for instance, has an excellent essay on the Jewish question that I would encourage people to read. People shouldn't be scared to do it. They should definitely look into it. But it is not the only it's not the only question. It's not the only issue. Um, and I think a lot of people tend to fall into that trap. You know, before we wrap up the first hour here, I think we can touch upon a few more points and then get into another messianic figure with the, the 17 Frankists. But um, with Zionism, there's sort of like in the alternative media or conspiracy circles, a lot of times that is sort of seen as the be all end all of everything. But I also think that maybe that angle is very prominent too. And so these are where you get into the sticky area. So with Zionism, what would you say about that in terms of the conspiracy world? Do you think they're chasing a red herring on some level or just over-exaggerating it or even sort of virtue signaling for the conspiracy theorists, I would say? The conspiracy theory literature is um, full of a lot of good stuff. And I think, unfortunately, it's also full of you know, some crazy people, but also just uh, deliberate red herrings and limited hangouts. And so it's kind of like a minefield that we have to navigate. And it's very difficult. But I do think um, that the secret society aspect of this question is a critical one that has to be dealt with. And so, you know, I translated this book from Gershom Sholem called uh, From Frankism to Jacobinism that deals with one of these characters um, who was a Sabbatean Frankist and a Jacobin in the French Revolution and a Kabbalist and a member of several uh, Freemasonic societies. So I think that there's a lot of good historical um, evidence from mainstream authors that show that this is not something to scoff at or to sneer at and that it deserves our time and attention. And in terms of practical stuff for the modern day, People haven't seen the building that the Israeli Supreme Court occupies that was paid for by the Rothschild family and for which they furnished the plans. The building, do you know about this? Have you seen this thing? Is that the pyramid that they got and stuff? I didn't know the Rothschilds were part of that. That's new to me. Oh, yeah. They, they bought the land. They paid for the building, but then they specified that it would be built according to their plans if they paid for it. And, you know, as you know, um, it is absolutely replete with occultist symbols and bizarre, strange things that no building needs. And so the idea that this is, you know, that the secret society stuff and the occultism doesn't play any role in world politics or Zionism particularly, I think is, you know, quite naive uh, for people to, to argue that. In defense of people living in Israel and, and trying to be objective and understanding of people that are in that place that has a lot of these hidden aspects to them that might not be so good, 
What are some sympathies that you would express towards people living there? And I'll just give a couple quick examples for me. When I watch, you know, these YouTube interviews with people in Israel, they'll go around and be like, oh, you're Israeli. Like, what do you think of Jesus? And I see a very wide variety of responses. Some people are just indifferent. Um, some people are mocking it, but more from an atheistic point of view. They don't even care about, like, the opposition in Judaism. And then some have like a sort of pseudo new agey or even maybe Islamic view where, oh, you know, he's a good dude, but not God, just a spiritual teacher. You know, we should respect him. And then on occasion, you'll have all out hatred and contempt and uh, people being quite triggered just by the mention of his name. So to me, that's similar to America, um, where the people can get very hostile about Christianity in America. So um, what would you say about uh, the people of Israel that we don't want to get? overly uh, condemnational about or start throwing out broad statements when it comes to this conspiracy stuff? Yeah, so um, first off, I think we should just recognize that, you know, people are individuals and, you you know, individuals contribute to characteristics of a group. They they contribute something to the to the ideology of the group or its characteristics. But of course, they can always all be different. And they are. And the Israelis that I've known and met in my life have been um, relatable, um, much more so and much less neurotic, in fact, than the American Jews that I've known and met. And so I think that says a lot about the lifestyle and the psychological condition of the diaspora in that living amongst a population that you think is out to get you and could uh, do a pogrom on you at any time and hold some sort of fundamental animosity towards you, that does a number on your psychology. And the Israelis, since they don't live like that, um, you know, they, to me, they, they, they seem more, more normal and uh, more relatable. Um, the other good thing I could say about the Israelis is that they seem to have a healthy and non-destructive attitude toward their own culture. They uh, know who they are. And they want to preserve them. They want to preserve their culture, their religion, their way of life, whatever it happens to be, for future generations. While at the same time, in the West, we see the total collapse of our civilization and our culture. So, if uh, there's no conflict between them surviving and us surviving, then I say more power to them. And I think that most Israelis um, don't really have, um, you know, animosity towards us. But then the political leadership the leadership of their religious and social communities, that may be a different story. Maybe they, maybe they view us differently. I don't know. Yeah. And then considering that those are the, the folks with the most power and influence. So that becomes right. more of a problem and it's similar in America. There's a lot of things that we kind of get forced upon us and um, you know, the constitution as people generally tend to worship either way, it, it does get set aside when it's convenient and you can see this going back all the way to the beginning with like uh the, the different rebellions uh, the the shays or whiskey rebellions where you know the yeah. taxation problems put right back in their faces and it's just like well we're just going to suppress it <laughs> like the british yeah. were trying to do to us so it's like a contradiction it's kind of built in and people are just trying to ignore it or justify it or find some other way of diverting maybe some of those fundamental issues but kind of uh i guess to wrap up the point here you know, to me, it's like Israel exists and that's not going to change. So, you know, you just got to deal with it. And, and to me, just being an America, I guess, it's just like I don't want my money and foreign 
you know, support going there. I'd rather have these things uh, benefiting where I live. And that would be my main issue with all these things. Uh, this, uh, you know, any sort of alliance that is at the expense of us, I would have a, a huge problem with. And I think that that is really the main gripe of most people with this relationship of the United States and Israel. And I'm not an expert in all the geopolitics. That's just my macro understanding and observation. on it. I don't know well, it's, you know, it, it's bad for us and it's bad for them because they get put in a situation of moral hazard where as long as they're being backed up and funded by us, their political leadership can bomb other countries without fearing retaliation because Big Brother will come in and smash everybody. Um, and for us, you know, we end up getting drug into all of these conflicts, which we really have nothing to do with. So the their political leadership gets the moral hazard, and then we we get we get drug in. So if the, if we weren't supporting them in the way that we had been since before the state of Israel was even founded, then um, they would have to have the kind of relationship with their Arab neighbors that they had that the Jews living in that area had before the state was founded, which is, you know, we live in our different areas, we try not to push each other too far, and whenever whenever we do have intercommunal violence, we have to worry about diffusing the situation rather than amplifying it, which is what happens today. And the last point to wrap up the whole Zionist topic, this might be just speculation, but I just figured I'd ask, what do you think is the role of Kabbalah in terms of its dominant aspect of any sort of Zionist agendas from the top power players? How much do you think that factors in? I think that there's essentially two groups um, involved in the Zionist project running at the top level. And I think one, one group is a secular uh, national socialist, uh, racial Jewish racialist type group. And then I think the other one is the um, kind of like the Chabad, uh, Tikkun Olam type group that, you know, really wants to establish worldwide um, Jewish domination rule from from Jerusalem, basically. So a, a messianic utopianism and world domination. And the other group just wants to have their their nation state, essentially. Um, but so the so of the second group of the, um, the the religious utopian group, I think the Kabbalah is part of their a part of the fundamental structure of their worldview. Yeah, and it makes sense to me in conjunction with things like theosophy, because when I read Madame Blavatsky or even just three Masonic writers who are into the esoteric, like Albert Pike and whatnot, it's very much tied to things in the United Nations agenda as it is today or as it seems to be, they seem to sort of go hand in hand with that universal Kabbalah in a way that's really the what institutions like B'nai Baruch promote. And they have all these weird prophecies from the Zohar about evil Rome being destroyed, which obviously represents the West and Western civilization. And then you have, strangely enough, rabbis on YouTube. I don't know exactly how popular these guys are, but you can see them talking about how you know, the, the flooding of migrants into Europe, it's not good or bad. It's just prophecy. That's one of the things. And other people are saying it's excellent news to have Europe flooded with migrants. So, you know, if they're tying it to these prophecies of evil Rome being destroyed, then to me, that's really akin to these Zohar end times prophecies as far as I could read them on the uh, Benai Baruch website. Yeah. I, I I totally agree. So th those viewpoints are definitely out there. 
And what we don't know, the missing part of the missing uh, piece in this puzzle is how influential are those at the top levels of the uh, power players in, in, in our society and worldwide. But I think that many people, and probably us too, if we knew the true extent, if we were able to peel back the foil wrapper and see, you know, wh where, how far does this stuff go, there would be Kabbalism everywhere. Like you say, in the United Nations, the uh, uh, pro uh, Protestant Zionist sects in America, you know, uh, it, it would just be all over the place. We, we would really be shocked if we knew the full extent of it and how influential it really is. And everyone believes in the Kabbalistic story of creation of the Big Bang because it's almost exactly like I read in these Freemasonic books that they say are drawing upon Jewish Kabbalist traditions with the cosmic egg, a singularity bursting in the infinite universe and all this kind of stuff. It's just amazing to me how much our modern science actually sounds like the esoteric of all of these Freemasonic Kabbalistic writers. Well, it's, it's, no, it's no accident that plenty of the most prominent mathematicians and physicists of the 20th century have been secularized Jews. So um, what we're seeing, you pointed out Carl Sagan earlier, and I uh, brought up, or we brought up Marx. So there's these people who you strip away the, um, the, the orthodoxy and the Talmudism, and then you're left behind with some kind of perhaps, uh, you know, hazy, misty spiritualism that may carry some of those Kabbalistic ideas forward in a supposedly secular format. But actually, it's just coming in through the back door. Exactly. And so right now we're uh, about to the hour mark. So maybe we'll expand upon this in the next hour with the Sabatine Frankists, talk about their Kabbalism, and then we'll get into some of the more controversial things what's called the blood libel cases and whatnot so be before we wrap it up here i don't know if you just wanted to give a few links to your channel i'll put them in description but anything you want to give to the listeners for the free hour thanks uh, everybody for um tuning in and you can find me right now on youtube you can find me on BitChute. if you want to contact me personally you can find me on telegram and I have one book for sale at lulu.com. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, Head to schism206.podbean.com.